0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network.
1: bakers fresh for everyone
2: welcome to the rocks back pages podcast i'm barney hoskins and i'm in our hammersmith offices with rocks back pages co-founder mark prengle hi mark Hi, Barney. Meanwhile, our colleague Jasper Bow is in Cornwall. Hi, Jasper. Hello, Barney. And our guest for this episode is in Edinburgh. A warm welcome to the wonderful Vashti Bunyan. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely to see you, Vashti. We're thrilled to host you today, not just because we love your magical music, but because you've just published a very special memoir called Wayward, which, among other things, tells the extraordinary story of how you travel all the way from was it Essex or Sussex
3: it was south of London it was Sidcup
2: (laughs) Sidcup Sidcup, right all the way from Sidcup Uh to the outer Hebrides in a horse-drawn wagon so we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment (laughs) Um, I thought we should start with because the phrase leapt out at me I think you credit it to Andrew Lou Goldham To start with your childhood and the expensive orphanage that (laughs) that you were sent to as a child, how do you how do you remember your childhood and when when did music first come into your childhood, Vashti? Oh, I think it was my father uh, with his huge collection of seventy eights, all
3: classical music, and so it's all in my head, but I haven't a clue what anything was or who anything was by. But it was yeah, it filled my childhood, and then of course I. Became enamored with with pop music throughout my teen years. I think, uh, Everly Brothers, and dare I say it, Cliff Richard and the Shadows, and well, yes, all yes. of that. Yes, which I've only recently come to admit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> why was it? A, why was it such a dark secret? <laughs>
3: <laughs> because he is so uncool for such a
4: long
0: time <laughs> so, yeah you 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 say it but move it's a fantastic
4: it's series. it's
0: wonderful it is wonderful it's a really great british rock and roll yeah. record and unfortunately yeah. it's what it's what happened to cliff after exactly we'll draw draw a veil exactly
3: over. and so that's what i've done for most of my life
0: <laughs> <laughs> until
3: relatively recently when yeah
4: so
2: the veil has now been yanked aside. <laughs> yes. And you write about seeing Cliff in Blackpool in yeah. 1961,
3: I yeah, think. Yeah, I was 16 and I was, uh, through some friends of my parents, I was allowed to go back and get an autograph photograph. Uh, having just seen him on stage, When before I just, you know, it was black and white TV. And to see somebody live on the stage was amazing for me. Uh, so I went back expecting to see this great star, and he was just so angry-looking and so cross and so uh, dark-eyed and scowling at everybody at this room full of, of, of people, you know, drinking and smoking and having a lovely time, and he was just sulking in the corner, more or less, and I felt really sorry for him. And I, I was only 16, but I felt really sad for him that he wasn't enjoying who he was and what he was doing.
0: It's a very interesting revelation about the nature of being a being a, a star in those days, yes. or at any time.
3: Yes, I know, and, and yes, and maybe he. Well, I found out recently. Through Bob Stanley, that actually his father had just died, and that was maybe why oh. he was so oh. upset, and that he was being made to do these shows even though he was grieving. Mm. And so that kind of explains it to me, and makes me feel a bit sad about what I've said about him. But,
0: you Well, know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's also possible that that not just that, but his general experiences as a young pop star is what drove him into the arms of the Lord as he sort of subsequently did.
3: Absolutely, I'm sure yeah, that's I, right. I'm sure that's right.
0: Some people take drugs. Some people get God, and he, he got God. He Definitely got God. Yeah. <laughs>
5: <laughs> oh. But seeing him like that didn't sort of serve as a cautionary tale for you, as far as wanting to get into the music industry. You mm. seem to seem to nevertheless want me it. off. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> it
3: didn't. It was all fascinating to me. Completely fascinating. And the film Expresso Bongo was what really set me off really wanting that world you know even though it was Mm. sleazy and sleazy Soho yeah I was fascinated by it probably because I was never allowed to go there to down to Soho (laughs) so so of course it appealed and yeah the whole the whole world of pop music completely appealed that's what I wanted
2: Actually, something fascinates me, which is when you were first singing, and I believe I'm assuming it was a trio, the three of us. You were singing like Everly's and Buddy Holly songs. Yeah, I mean, how close was your singing voice at that time to the very unique instrument that it? You know, we know, and, uh-huh. and that I assume it still is.
3: I think pretty close. The recordings I made not long after that, yeah, they're. I think my voice remained the same, really, for, right. for a very long time, even when I right. started again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and well, you talk about the demo recordings, and of course, that did take you into sleazy Soho, or at least the other side of the Charing Cross Road, Denmark Street. Yeah. Demonstrate. Demonstrate. yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yes. So tell us, tell us how you came into you know the world of of recording, recording. songs.
3: I just terribly wanted to make singles I wanted to record my own songs as singles and I thought that they they would work and I still think they would have (laughs) 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 I did go up and down Denmark street knocking on doors trying to find somebody who might be interested in my songs but I was I was very young I had a guitar with me I didn't look like your normal girl pop singer at all. but with my holy jumper and uh, yeah, and probably scowling face. But uh, yeah, they they they, <laughs> they just said no, sorry, not commercial, you know. And I I didn't. I wouldn't have looked great in a in a ball gown. So I was I was sent away with with pats on the backside. You know, very nice dear, yeah, yeah. but but really not commercial. So yeah. Yeah, and then I came across Andrew le Golden. <laughs>
0: yes, yes. <laughs> what a person to come across. <laughs> oh,
3: yeah, unforgettable, unforgettable.
2: But he was only 21 and you were only 20. It's extraordinary yes. to think, you know, know, how young you you both were. What a mover and shaker. He already he was. He really was, the yes, mm, yes. Yeah, yeah.
3: And that's what I loved about it, that uh, these young people were, sweeping aside the old guys and taking it on for themselves. It was a wonderful, yes. wonderful feeling.
2: When we listen to those early records you made, you know, on under Andrew's Aegis, I mean, is it is it fair or is it a bit crass to say that he thought, oh, I've got a dark version of of Marion Faithful? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. did you feel that that you were somehow being Kind of groomed for that role? No, I had no idea. I mean, I was okay. it's
3: far too dumb to even think in those terms. But I think, well, since he has said that, no, that wasn't his idea. That he did know that I was different. But once the press got hold of the story it, that I was a dark-haired replacement for Marianne, they <laughs> it, it went off. You know, that, and, and there was no getting it back once that yeah, once, yeah. once that was there. And it it has followed me all my life, you know, that that, that's what I was. And yet he he says now, no, that wasn't his intention. So I have to believe that.
2: (laughs) But in a way, you defined yourself in opposition to that, didn't you? I mean, you know what what we know, I mean, particularly just another Diamond Day Mm. is 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 what happens when you you choose not to be the the dark haired Marianne. Yes. In a way. Right. Yeah.
3: Well, I think it happened even before that. Uh, when I made Train Song, which was my second single, that it, I had left Andrew's world by then. And I just wanted something really simple. And it was just uh, two guitars and a double bass and a cello. Um, and that was what I wanted, really, in contrast to to Andrew's world. But of course, it didn't yes. work because it didn't get any publicity at all. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I was really struck. I, I love the book, by the way. Thank um, well, yeah, in a, lovely, in a day book. flat, the one thing that's very clear in the book is you had very strong ideas about what you wanted to do, and getting men, in particular, to accept your ideas was a struggle. Throughout uh, that sort of period, yeah. you know, whether it's with Andrew Oldham or later with Joe Boyd, mm-hmm. as it, was a, it was a thing. Uh, and I'm, I'm really struck by how clear you were. I mean, a lot of people were going to pop in those days and be happily manipulated and pushed around by producers and so on and so forth. And you didn't like that, did you? No,
3: I didn't. But then there was nothing much I could do about it at the time yeah. because the producer at that time was King. You know, whether it was a man or a woman, the producer was the person who shaped mm-hmm. you and and uh, there was no getting away from that at the time. Of course, it's changed now. <laughs> but uh, at that point, I don't like to blame the fact that I was a girl for my failure. I blame myself for not being the right right kind of person to take it on Mm -hmm. and yes it was true that most of the people who were in control at the time were not women but there were some I mean Sandy Shaw's manager was a woman
0: yes of course
3: and so you know it's it's not not so cut and dried it's not so black and white and looking Mm -hmm. back on my own time I don't blame anything for the fact that I didn't break through it was me I was you know, I was shy I didn't ever speak yeah. to anybody if I could help it so you know it's not surprising that I didn't get through myself sure
2: it is extraordinary to look back and remember that some things just stick in your mind it was a song written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and, and on the session. You had Jimmy Page, John McLaughlin, yeah. and Big Jim Sullivan playing guitar. Yeah, Nicky Hopkins, Hopkins on yeah. piano. I'm assuming it was probably Clem Cattini on drums. I can't remember if it was Clem Cattini. I um, don't know. But, I mean, this was the, this is the creme de la creme yes. the sort of the London session world of the time, wasn't
3: it? It was. They were session players.
2: And, of yeah, course, yeah. I
3: I knew nothing about anything, really. <laughs> and, and, yeah, looking back and thinking those people were actually at that Playing on that session when I listen to it now, and I can hear all those different instruments and Nicky Hopkins particularly, just it was a fantastic session. it was a fantastic yeah. song, beautiful song,
2: yeah. yeah but nah didn't work <laughs> <laughs> I also love the story, which kind of reminds me a little bit of the way Andrew stuck Mick and Keith in a room and ordered them to write a song, which was the only original, I think, on their debut album. And, and I think in your book, you say he, he shoved you in a room with a copy of Pat Sounds, mm-hmm. an album by Tim Hardin, yeah. and an album by the Mamas and the Puppets yeah. and said, write some songs. Yeah, write something. And I think yeah.
3: You, yeah. In between, he said, write something in between all these three. And put me in a room with a piano. Easy. With a piano. I don't play the piano. The <laughs> it, was, it was completely crazy. And so, yeah, I just took those albums away and uh, left.
2: <laughs> I did. You still I did. got them, haven't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, the country won't come back. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I,
3: I left them with my brother and I think that maybe one of my nieces might have them now which, and I, i'm meaning to find <laughs> out yeah yeah
2: lovely lovely let's talk a bit about folk music because you're very int- i mean you i think you say at various points and you've said in interviews you know you spent your life trying to escape from being classified as a, as as a folk singer yeah and you write in the book about alistair Clare and Cecil sharp house and you say yeah. that you could find no place in in the folk world mm-hmm. even though i think you know i mean even i would listen to, to to some of your music and and sort of hear it as a as a version of folk yeah if not freak folk uh-huh. to use that label yeah. but what 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 do you think made you kind of struggle with with that world and that classification, Vashti?
3: I think because I didn't fit in
2: to either. I, I wasn't
3: I wasn't folky enough for the folk world, mm-hmm. and I wasn't uh, insistent enough for the pop world. Right. So I didn't I didn't fit anywhere. And so, when now I'm described as a folk singer. It sets up something in me that I was never a folk singer. <laughs> I was never <laughs> a folk singer. I am not a folk singer, and I, I don't know why it affects me so badly. But it does. I can't. Yeah, it's hear
0: interesting. It. It, it, it really is interesting because I, mean, uh, I mean, you know, listening to your stuff, the, the, your third album, Heartleap, mm-hmm. to me, sort of. I mean, which is an extraordinary record because this is someone at your stage, at your age, dare I say it, learning to use this technology to record on computers and so on and so forth. And I can hear in that you sort of trying to establish what you wanted to do back in 1966. or Yes, whatever. exactly.
3: Exactly. That is what I wanted to do.
0: Right, and it you know, it doesn't sound like folk music
2: to me at all. Oh, I gosh. mean, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. Thank you. She's going to stay now. She's she's not going to leave. <laughs> all <of> course, <laughs> all right. All right.
0: Having said that, I, I absolutely uh, love Just Another Diamond Day. You know, we'll talk about Joe Boyd more in a minute, but in your book, you sort of complain about how you dislike the sound of your voice on that record. And I think your voice sounds sensational oh. on that record. <laughs> the, the Jerry Boyce is one of the great engineers who went on to do um, all the Buena Vista the, the Social Club stuff and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Just recorded your voice beautifully. Yeah,
3: I know. Well, I know that now, but, you know, for many years. <laughs> 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 I couldn't listen to it I couldn't listen to it for 30 right. years so but now I can listen to it and I can see how Joe produced it I can see how Jerry Boys recorded it and mm-hmm. I have huge appreciation for that now but at, at right. the time it wasn't what I
5: had yeah, in my yeah. head
3: and I mm-hmm. couldn't I couldn't accept it.
5: Do you think that part of your reaction to folk or against folk was kind of the Cecil Sharp house was very much looking backwards to a tradition, Mm. whereas you were so keen, as we've already talked about, you were so driven to write your own material and put it out there. Yes,
3: and I I think I said in the book it was like it was pickled in aspic. all of those
5: beautiful old songs, beautiful songs, but
3: I couldn't see the point of doing them again, you know, or or, or, of repeating (laughs) all of that or even recording them in my own way. I didn't – it just never crossed my mind to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that actually some of the musicians you did work with and was problematic for you, in that they were regarded as folk musicians, uh-huh. were actually having the same battle themselves. When I think of people like Fairport Convention, mm-hmm. the early Incredible String Band, mm-hmm. these were people who, yes, they were aware of the folk tradition, but they wanted to do something quite yes, different as well. Yes,
3: of course, they, they did, and yeah, it, it's really difficult when you're when you're told you're something. <laughs> 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 you read about being that all the time you read it read it read it folk 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 it's really hard to get away from really hard and joe did apologize to me but he he said that you know he knew that he'd made (laughs) he would condemned me to being a folk singer for always by bringing the string band and fairport into the, the recordings but that the, where he had met me, or at least not met me, but where he had seen me with a horse and a cart and a dog and a horn and all of those things, in a field, he says, it was the most folky kind of life he'd ever seen. <laughs> but then, you know, yes. he came from Harvard. And so, you know, of course it seemed to him like I, I was being a traditional folky. And, of course, later he realised I wasn't. But And so he apologised to me that,
0: that, yeah, that, that he
3: knew that it was his fault that I'd been labelled this way. But you know, yeah, I I had to accept his apology.
0: <laughs> you had already done your spectacular bunk from London before you started <laughs> recording that album. Yes. Tell our listeners why you did that. Why did you leave London? Why did you buy this horse and cart from a travelling? Wow
3: why why uh (laughs) (laughs) because
2: she still doesn't know
3: (laughs) i think i thought there was nothing else i could do you know i I felt that i had tried my hardest to make my way with my own songs and that i Mm -hmm. had failed dismally and you know there were three recordings that i'd done for andrew that were going to be released and were going to be great and then they weren't and then another one that was going to be great and then it wasn't and by the time the third one came along and was shelved I couldn't stand it anymore and yeah. I had to give it up I had to I had to accept that I was no good at this and so I went into a bit of a nosedive and it ended up with my father kicking me out of the house with my dog because he'd uh well anyway i won't go into that but um mm-hmm. i had to i had to leave i had either my dog had to go or i had to go so i went and i had met this amazing art student called robert lewis who was hitchhiking a year before this all happened but i mm-hmm. reconnected with him he was living in a wood behind the art school that he attended under a rhododendron bush and <laughs> at the time I felt that was the only thing I could do was to go and join him there. And, in fact, it was great uh, until the Bank of England, whose land we were on, threw us out. (laughs) (laughs) It was really sad because we'd made a beautiful place for ourselves in the middle of this wood. But, anyway, we we had to leave. And it was when we left that wood that we actually decided that it would be good to have a house on wheels because then when people moved us on, be Mm -hmm. safe and at that particular moment we found an old bread van a horse-drawn bread van yeah and a horse and you know just one thing led to another and off we went (laughs) um (laughs) and it seems extraordinary now but at the time it didn't seem extraordinary it just seemed like the only thing I could do
2: yeah, is that because people were going back to the land that there was that sort of hippie dream of mm-hmm. a, a kind of pastoral life an unplugged life? So yeah. in the context, it didn't seem like such a hardship to to be because I mean it's, it, it, the story of getting to the Outer Hebrides is like I mean. I would have given up. I would have given (laughs) up by the time we got to Hemel (laughs) Hempstead. That's
3: right. My my brother always said we thought you'd give up when you got to Bishop Storkford I don't know where (laughs) that
4: (laughs) is. Yeah,
3: I know. Well, I don't think I would have been aware of that. You know, back to the country movement at the time, but clearly it was fairly general, and it was because Robert was at our school with people who had grown up with donovan and so we met donovan and Mm -hmm. he had bought these islands off the west coast of scotland off of sky and he wanted to to create some kind of not exactly community but just like-minded people taking up the old crofts and the ruins in that area and we thought that was a great idea and so that's what we set off towards was finding a a way to live away from london Mm -hmm. Where life could be much simpler,
0: and then of course you get there, and he more eventually you get there, and he Morris tells you to bugger off, doesn't
3: he? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't him that told us to bugger off, really. It was just that it was very clear there wasn't a place for us.
4: Right. All, all
3: the people who had gone with him the year and a half before, when they set off in the Land Rover, and we set off in a house, horse and cart. Um, all, all the people who had done what he wanted, uh, were really more or less gone away, apart from just a few people. And he, in that time, had become immensely successful and was filling yeah. stadiums in America and was really successful. And so he hardly ever spent any time on Sky. And he just happened to be there when we arrived, which was uh, absolutely crazy, ridiculous. But this, yes, there he was. I sang Rainbow River to him with his guitar and it was pretty clear that his life had moved on. Robert's and my life had completely changed being on mm-hmm. that journey about the, the education that we had and the people that we had become and it was very clear that yeah I mean, this isn't what we came towards this isn't what we did this for mm. so we carried mm. on and, and made more or less made a life of our own away from
4: yeah. the rainbow river is a Pine tree tall. The rainbow river has a small boy fishing with a worm and a jam jar by the waterfall.
2: I wanted to mention this thing that Robert, your boyfriend, says to you along the lines of. Why don't you? I think. Why don't you stop writing those miserable love songs and write about what's around you? Yeah. And I am wondering how important that was because, although I think you had written the beautiful glowworms already at that point, yeah. you do then start writing these much more personal and, you know, and 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 in some cases quite eccentric songs <laughs> that really talk about this life yeah. on the road and yeah. in the Outer Hebrides. So, I mean, was that an important moment? Did that make? Yeah. Did that change direction for you a little bit? Hugely, hugely. And, yes. and I, looking
3: back, I don't know if it was the right thing for him to do or if it was mm. not the right thing for him to do, but it definitely changed my songwriting into something, I think, with, with a, a, a bit of an ear to whether he would approve of it or whether he would go along with it. A lot of the songs, well, actually three of the songs, the words were written by him. Uh, and yes. I just re- wrote the tunes. But, yes, they became narrative. They became dreamlike fantasies. They they were, you know, I, I wasn't thinking ever of recording them. I was never going to set foot in a recording studio again. <laughs> <laughs> but they were just, I was writing about what I was finding, and I was also writing about the dream of getting there and trying to make it into a happier kind of experience than it actually was. And um, right. trying to comfort myself with them, really.
4: Mm-hmm. And right. I think
3: that that maybe comes across that they're comforting songs. Yes. Apparently they make babies go to sleep, which really pleases me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if all else fails, even if you don't uh, love yeah. just another diamond, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. if that doesn't work, oh dear.
5: <laughs> then it's the baby's fault. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely! Oh yes.
0: I mean, it's, it's, it was extraordinary listening to that album whilst reading your book, and mm. the, the 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 two things fit together perfectly. Your your written narrative and and what you're listening to just sort of slot together extraordinarily mm. well.
3: Oh, I'm glad you found that because that that was really what I kind of wanted. Right. In the way that the songs are kind of condensed. Um, yeah. They don't dwell too much on on things i wanted the, the book to be like that so there was so much more i could have said but i, I yeah. didn't want to I, I wanted to make it a picture really yeah in the same way the album
0: so you know we have sort of thirty you have three children you build various lives in various <laughs> different places at, at different times yeah. uh, the one thing that's i read and felt actually quite really saddened and upset by is you saying how you didn't play and sing to your children
3: oh, i know I know. I didn't. I didn't. Music became such a, a, a oh dear, it sounds really pathetic, but it was just painful.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: And because it reminded me of my own big failure in the in the place where I wanted to be within mm-hmm. music and musicians and, and recorded music and that I hadn't, hadn't done it. And so listening to other people was really painful. So I didn't, we, we had very little music in their growing up times. I certainly never sang to them and I didn't want them to know about the album or anything that had gone before that. I, right. I kept it from them. Right. They found an old dusty tape copy of the album in the back of a drawer and took it out to the car to play it that was the only tape player we had and they took it out to the car to play it secretly wow and i didn't know that until quite a well a few years ago that my daughter told me that's what they did
2: that's amazing It's Children amazing. will find things, won't they? <laughs> <laughs> you, you
3: can't keep any secrets from the kids.
4: No, yeah.
2: no. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, you know, there's, there's a different team listening, hearing your, your mother's album and me discovering my father's war medals. I mean, I, I know
2: which one I'd have preferred to have discovered. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. I did want to actually ask you about your very unique melodic sense you know on the songs on just another diamond day it's mm-hmm. such a distinctive obviously your voice is utterly unique but I always find your melodies so beautiful and so unusual and I just wondered if if there was anything any explanation for that or anything that you drew on that shaped your melodic sense Vashti
3: I think carols probably carols and hymns right. from when I was a child I just used to belt them out <laughs> um, <laughs> I loved them I loved them and I think I, I hear quite a lot of of that in in my songs <laughs> I don't know i I really don't know they just they just appear and I'm sure every songwriter is the same it's just an amalgam of everything they've ever heard in their lives
0: In your book you say that you're done with doing it anymore, but are you still writing songs? no.
4: No
3: not, at all. no, not at all. The last song I wrote was Hartley. And right. I, I kind of knew when I was putting it together that this might be the last thing that I ever write, the last song that I ever write, because it seemed to say everything I wanted to say.
0: How um, extraordinary. And then
3: I started writing the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's so different, so, so different. Yeah. And I don't know how easy it would be or or how, how possible it would be to get back to that, that kind of the, the lyrics, you know. I think I found it really difficult with with the with the book that my words were misinterpreted, maybe by an editor, and maybe made into something else. that lyrics, lyrics are lyrics, mm-hmm. and they changed. So, mm-hmm. so it's maybe unsettled me a bit that words can be so so misinterpreted and so misunderstood yes. if they're not really straightforward and and. That's what I really liked about songwriting, of course, that they're just straight. And if people understand, they do. And if they don't, it doesn't matter. But with a book, it's probably more
4: important.
0: Yeah. One thing that's interesting is is that it seems that you you could write songs when you had something sort of specific to write about. Mm -hmm. And so clearly the whole journey up to Scotland and so on and so forth was an enormous amount to write about. As you say, a way of processing what was often... Quite clearly, quite unhappy times, and so on and so yeah. forth. And then your two more most recent, more recent albums of original material is a is it as much about your new life, your new relationship, and so on and so forth, so that you had something to write about?
3: Yes, yes, because I didn't write anything at all from Diamond Day up until uh, Diamond Day w- was reissued in two thousand. Right. So from nineteen seventy to two thousand. I never wrote another song. It kind of coincided with the last child leaving home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it also coincided with the better response to Diamond Day. Yes. And that, that unlocked something. I don't know. I think Diamond Day was looking forward so much. Mm-hmm. And then look aftering was, was, as you say, processing all, yeah. all of those last 30 years. Uh, it was looking back and and then once i had done with that those those sort of bookends, I felt much freer to just write what I was feeling rather than yeah. rather than the story the yes. story about any, anyone, although in Hartley there are a few stories about people, but they're how I felt about the people right. it, it was much more much more about emotions, I think rather than the stories rather than the narrative. Yeah.
2: Ashley, having walked away from pop music in the way that you did and then as it were putting just another Diamond Day, you know, in a bottom drawer and (laughs) forgetting completely about it, what was your first sense that this album was somehow going to be kind of resurrected and become this 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 cult object and sort of you know the, the featured writer on our homepage this week is Jude Rogers and who interviewed you recently for The Guardian lovely yes. Jude we had her on the podcast yeah and she talks about you in this piece as you know that that album the reissue of that album by by Spinney, spearheaded a whole sale kind of rediscovery of what she calls lost ladies of folk which is <laughs> not, not, not a phrase that would endear itself to you <laughs> um, but when did when did you think oh my god you know i thought that no one was ever going to talk about me again and suddenly i'm you know i'm this sort of cult figure i mean was that a strange experience
3: really strange and and i don't think i took it in really Right. Because for 30 years I had completely ignored this album and tried hard to forget about all of that. It stayed with me. And even now when somebody says that they know the album, I think, why? <laughs> 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 and when I listen to it, well, if I read something lovely written about it or said about it, and then I hear a snippet of one of the songs, I think, are they really talking about that? It's it, it's it it's in with the bricks that nobody knows the music, and so it was never a sort of wow. Every, wow, people know about it now. It was just really. <laughs> I, I don't I don't understand why, but it's taken me a long time to understand and to try to hear that album as it is heard now, and not yes. as it was rejected then. I still find it quite difficult to understand what has happened to it. Even now.
2: Mm. Ironically, there's there's almost a sort of parallel with Marianne Faithful, who has been like adopted by so many you know, musicians from younger generations, yes. you know, whether it's whether it's Beck or Nick Cave or PJ Harvey, they'll sort of worship her. And then and you, you, suddenly you get this sort of flotilla of younger admirers from Devendra Banhart to the great Joanna Newsome, mm-hmm. who I I just worship,
4: yeah. <laughs> yeah. quite rightly, and, quite and rightly,
2: she, yeah, and she plays on "Look Aftering," doesn't yeah. she? She's on that record. I mean, you know, and, and I I love that. So so you're fated by all these younger people, and and uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a lovely thing. It is a lovely thing, even if you never write another song. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Are you still in touch with with any of those? Are they all still are they kind of phoning you up and, and, and demanding that you make another record?
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm still very much in touch with Devendra. Um, yes. He's just, yeah, he, he's a great light in my life. Not so much Joanna, because she's she's really, I don't know what has happened to her musically, but she's definitely got a family now and I think that's their mm-hmm. important focus and yeah, Animal Collective, yes I'm still in touch with, with Josh a bit and yeah Glenn Johnson, Piano Magic, yeah, I saw him the other day, it was just so lovely It it is really brilliant that I am still in touch with all these yeah. young people who, who mm-hmm. took me on and made a place for me you know, they, they really mm-hmm. did especially Joanna and, and Devendra who You know, I see it written that I I was influenced on them. I wasn't. I wasn't, and Mm -hmm. they made a place for me. And uh, of course, I'm
0: forever grateful. That's that's lovely. It's a fantastic Mm. story. I mean, it's sort of talking about second acts in people's lives. I mean, this is
2: quite extraordinary.
3: How lucky! How fortunate!
2: I am. Well, and the book is a sort of third act in a way, isn't it? I mean, so I, the, the, the last sort of specific question I would ask you in this context is, I mean, are, are you're a wonderful writer. You're a natural born writer. Are you writing? Are you likely to write any other books?
3: I don't know. I've been so completely okay. swept away by what has <laughs> happened with, yes. with, 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 with making this book that I, I don't know, but you're, you're right about the third part of my life Mm
1: -hmm. but but
3: yes there there was (laughs) doing away with the music and the music coming back again but now with this book it does feel as if there's another whole bit of my life ahead that I hadn't foreseen Mm -hmm. whether I write again or not I don't know there's a bit in the book about our year in Ireland where we had so many crazy, crazy adventures. It was the most amazing time. And I would love to write a, about that. Not particularly a whole book about it, but I would <laughs> love to write that part yeah. because it was extraordinary. And and there wasn't room for it in the book. Sure. But yes, whether I write more songs or not, I don't know. My guitar is sitting here looking at <laughs> <laughs> you. Yes,
2: looking, looking, looking,
3: beseeching me at you. And this, extraordinary,
0: <laughs> this computer which you've taught yourself to mm. record and everything, it's... it's, it's you know, it's, it's, I mean, I do, Jasper and I both do some of that ourselves, and it's not easy. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> an it, enormous. Amount,
3: well, yeah. but it but it was wonderful when I was making Hartley because I had Pro Tools on one laptop, I had Logic on another one by the side of it, and then I had a, a, a little old Air. Next to them, where I could write to people and say, What do I do now? (laughs) It was lovely because logic and Pro Tools are so different, but each one had something that I needed. And it was a great, great adventure. But now, if I were to go back into Pro Tools, I've probably forgotten entirely (laughs) how to.
2: (laughs) <laughs> I, know, I know the feeling yeah there's a, there's a program called Amateur Tools apparently oh, uh, for those just oh, <laughs>
4: <that's> <laughs> a, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Bastian, yeah. um, oh. I wanted to just touch on the late Robert Kirby. The third of the pieces that were are featuring in connection with you on the Right Stuff Pages homepage is Colin Irwin's obituary of four. I never know what, which preposition to use. Is it obituary for or obituary of? Neither sounds correct. Yeah. But he wrote Robert's obituary in 2009, and it mentions you and just another diamond day. And of course, Robert is the. A ranger who who plays the recorders and things and so forth on 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 that record and who of course worked with Nick Drake as well and was at Cambridge with Nick Drake mm-hmm. and I hope it's okay but I'd just like to talk briefly about Nick because. Nick is also sort of in the ether at the moment because it's 50 years since his final album, Pink Moon. And you write about him in the book. You you write about Joe Boyd bundling you off to do some writing, (laughs) writing with Nick, two very shy young people. And it's almost excruciating to read. (laughs) But, but I mean, the fact that you, 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 well, you knew Nick to say hello to. I don't know whether it's much more than that. But would you mind just talking briefly about about Nick? And then we're going to hear a clip of Joe talking about Nick that may jog some other memories.
3: Oh, great. <laughs> Do you want me to talk about it now
2: or after? I tell you what. Why don't we? Why don't we play that first clip? Because okay. because actually, it sort of, it does dovetail rather well with with how you write about Nick. So we're going to hear this, okay. Vashti. So this is Joe talking about Nick. Nick's appearance and how he remembers Nick, and specifically how he remembers Nick's hands and fingers.
6: One of the things I've lately kind of rediscovered about him, which I guess I, I was certainly aware of at the time, but it kind of got lost in the general, mm-hmm. were his was his hands and his guitar technique. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, he had unbelievably strong fingers. Right. And I remember I just now, for some reason now, whenever I try to conjure up the image of Nick, right. one of the things which is very clearly in focus is these very big and strong fingers right. and dirty but strong and grown-out fingernails. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, um, um, you know, usually had rather unkempt hair and right. was kind of, was. I mean, he tended to look a bit out of focus. <laughs> right. Generally, just because he was he never pulled himself together sort of in the way he dressed or combed his hair or whatever right but these hands the minute they got around a guitar were absolutely in control and clear and clean and strong and Mm. absolutely sort of in total control
2: Yeah. So this is Joe talking to Jerry Lim in, I think, 94 or five when the Way to Blue compilation is about to come out. And it's just fascinating hearing that. And I, I mean, we could probably talk, you know, for hours just about nick as a guitar player because i do think he's one of the greatest guitar players i mean we all we all talk about hendrix and clapton and whoever the hell it might be but i think nick is as an acoustic picking guitar player extraordinary
0: yeah but barney actually what he says what joe says uh, about that relates to those very people you mentioned if you look at like photographs of robert johnson The blues guitarist. He's got huge hands. You look at pictures. Jimi Hendrix, huge hands. That these people playing this delicate instrument, but they got meaty mitts to play Uh, with. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So,
2: do you remember the meaty mitts? (laughs) Yeah. use that unfortunate phrase. Sorry.
4: Yeah. I
3: never.
2: (laughs) What do you remember of Nick?
3: I never saw him play guitar. I know.
2: Right, because you played the piano that but afternoon. The piano,
3: and I actually didn't, I couldn't see what he was doing because he had his back to me. Yeah. This was when Joe decided it would be a great idea to send me to Nick's house uh, but for us to try to write a song together. Well, I had a tiny baby by then, and Nick was sitting at this upright piano. And I love what Joe says about him being slightly out of focus. I remember just this sort of black clad, rather dusty kind of person, All it back (laughs) to me. And I was sitting on a sofa and I had my baby and I had my guitar. And every time I put my baby down to pick up my guitar, the baby cried. And I I just, I've said it before that I have this clear, clear image of Nick's shoulders going higher and higher and higher. Right. Until I knew yeah. that there was no way. And he never turned around. And I had met him in, in Joe's office before that, and he had turned away, turned to the wall.
4: Yeah, and, so, and, and
3: I think maybe that was, he was still feeling like that at his piano. He didn't want to engage, and I couldn't. <laughs> and so yes. It was a kind of crazy idea of Joe's to think that either of us could have collaborated on anything when we were both so shy you
0: know sure I, I mean you know it is what record producers do often they'll think right well, this isn't working maybe we can stick this person with that person and yeah. something's going to happen yeah. and more more often than not, doesn't i mean i'll just briefly I, I i was sent by my company to write songs for lamont dozier of holland dozier holland oh. and i spent i spent a week in, in and we hated each other's guts from the moment <laughs> and absolutely nothing whatsoever came out of it so you know these sort of imposed things that frequently yeah. don't work. Yes.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yes, and i would never been able to actually collaborate with anybody. <laughs>
2: <laughs> How long did that did that writing session last, or not last?
3: Not last probably not more than an hour. You know,
2: right?
4: Um, yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah. It, wow. he,
3: he was tinkering away on the piano, certainly, but, mm. but not making anything. You know, and not mm. not. Uh, Certainly not communicating.
0: Well, I mean, he was in a bad place already, in all kinds you know, of respects. Really bad place. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Uh,
3: I don't know. Maybe Joe thought I could cheer him up, but he sent the wrong person to do it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure anyone could have cheered Nick up no, at that point. I, I mean, it's, it is a desperately sad story. I do uh-huh. think he's. I tell you what. Why don't we just listen to Joe? Talking about, I think he uses the phrase "romantic doom," and what a kind of almost sort of Keatsian figure Nick was. So let's hear that clip, Jasper.
4: Famous but a fruit tree, so very unsung.
6: it can never flourish
4: till its stock is in the ground.
6: Well, if you listen to his songs, you can hear that there's an element of romantic doom and prediction in the songs. Right, sure. I mean, Fruit Tree, which is one of the first songs he recorded, Mm -hmm. talks about an artist not being appreciated until he's dead. Right. And hanging on a star, too. Yeah. well, that's all the way at the end. You see? That's all the way at the end. Right, and it's, and Um, it's still there. Which is another side of it, which is that I think you know, there are a lot of different sides to Nick, and, and in some ways he seems to have a very clear vision of himself as troubled as he was. Right. But there were conflicts, and there were, you know, on the one hand, he didn't want to go out and play. Right. On the other hand, he wanted to be a star. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And he was rather taken aback that his music wasn't, didn't sell more records.
4: you deem me so high. When you deem me so high.
2: Yeah, I mean I find this really fascinating because I the, the romantic myth very much sort of says, well, you know, Nick was so cripplingly shy and depressed and romantic <laughs> that he would never have wanted to be a star at all. And of course, nobody who you know starts performing and recording doesn't want to be a star period, not even Vashti Bunyan. Um, <laughs> 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 this is yeah. extraordinary. Moment. I, I didn't know about this because I'm not sure I'd ever listened to this Joe Boyd audio the right way through, but he, but he talks about, cause Joe moved back to America. He moved to LA to work at Warner brothers in Bur- Burbank. As I'm sure, you know, Vashti, yeah. I think he was working on the kind of audiovisual side. And for a moment, there's this possibility that Nick might, moved to LA for at least a period. And there was a plan to do a sort of showcase at the Troubadour. And you suddenly think, oh my God, you know, could Nick have fitted into that? Um, David Geffen apparently really, really wanted to you know sign him. And you sort of think, oh my God, there's a parallel universe where Nick, you know, becomes part of that, you know, Asylum Records, Laurel Canyon scene. and But Joe... <laughs> probably rightly said no, LA is not a wise place. But you can't even imagine Nick Drake in yeah. LA. When A he couldn't drive and you know and I think Joe is probably right. But then you sort of think, well, you know what? A bit of sunshine, bit of swimming, a few palm trees, you might pull him out of that of this terrible <laughs> depression. I couldn't help thinking a, that. <laughs> yes,
3: a bit of acknowledgement. A bit of acknowledgement of his genius might have really
0: yes. I, I, the, the thing is, I don't think he'd have noticed the acknowledgement. Really? You know, the, the, I, I think, I think you know, he was getting, I mean, all right, within a fairly small circle, he was getting a lot of acknowledgement here. I think he was so low and so down into his own self that I don't think he'd have, I don't think he'd have
2: made any difference. I think that's just who he was. Mm. Uh-huh. I mean, Joe oh, talks fast. A psychiatrist,
0: right? Like, yes. Well, <laughs> talking
2: about talk about talking about amateur sort of psychology. I mean, Joe, one point very interesting talks about you know upper class repression, and he doesn't mention boarding school syndrome. But I mean, we know that Nick went to Marlborough, and. You know, uh, and and came from a, a privileged background, and and it, you know, I mean, clearly had some problems. I mean, whatever caused those problems, I don't know whether he had any sense of of that vasture, or just did not get close enough to him to really know.
3: I, I didn't get close enough to him to know yeah, when he yeah. turned his back on me. I thought he, was, yeah. he just didn't like me. <laughs> 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 yeah,
4: yeah. You thought Ill. you didn't like him. Oh, oh maybe. So sad, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I think. Yeah. I, I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. No one's ever going to know what what really no, happened.
2: I know. I know. Um, I know.
3: That 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 adds to the romance of it, I suppose. But I can't bear. It being romantic, because it was tragic. Yeah. Yeah, it
2: wasn't romantic for him, no, for sure, it was, was it? it was
3: not romantic for him at all.
2: And that last album, I mean, I think such a central part of the Nick Drake you know, myth or reality mm. is, and we'll hear an outro clip at the end where Jerry Lim asks... Joe, why he didn't produce the third album, Pink Moon, uh-huh. which is a completely stripped down, bare bones record that he just makes with John Wood, and it's there's I think there's like one overdub on it. Otherwise, it's just Nick and his guitar. I mean, I think it's a masterpiece, but it is a masterpiece of. Of loneliness and depression. It's pretty dark, you know. I mean black eyed dog. I mean, these are harrowing songs. they genuinely are, not to overcook it, but they're but but they are beautiful, I think.
3: I think so too. And and I think that he recorded that and then took it to Ireland, was it, and just put it on the desk and walked away. Yeah. And that was that. Uh, and what has happened yeah. to it since? Would he? Would he have loved that? Would he have loved that? That his music was taken up by commercials? Would he have loved that his music is behind so in, in so many film tracks? And would he have loved that? Would that have saved him? Would it? Mm. Nobody's ever yeah. going to know. If he was just no, so absolutely. far gone, as you say, that he was so far down inside, himself, yeah. but nothing, nothing would have saved him really.
2: Sure. I mean, when when I listened to Road again, I mean, I hadn't listened to Pink Moon for a while. I mean, I did. I, I thought of the road you took up <laughs> to the Evereadies, and that's that's an extraordinary song. And and things behind the sun. I mean, they're just. I mean, he was the. He's not my favourite singer in the world, but his songs and his playing, I think, are among the more remarkable things yeah. from that period. I will briefly say that he's also one of the worst influences
0: in. British musical history. Every single busker that you hate <laughs> on the South
2: Bank wants to be oh, Nick It right? Wants to be yeah. Nick Drake. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I know. Yeah. 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 It, I think that, there's some truth in that. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to just take a moment to say goodbye to a very different musician, very different kind of singer, <laughs> Chris Bailey of the Saints, who were uh, the first great Australian-like punk rock band. But actually, I'm not expecting you to comment on this but if you can just bear with us while we <laughs> while I remember chris bailey um i love the saints i loved chris bailey's voice i think he was one of the true like authentic punk voices andrew stafford one of our writers just wrote who's based in in australia or wrote an appreciation and and compares him you know not in terms of like sort of beautiful you know technique but compares that sort of punk snarl to the early van morrison and i i even think of someone like liam gallagher who whatever you think of oasis has has got a great sort of punk snarl of a voice and i that first single when it came out i'm stranded i thought was personally i thought it was better than anarchy in the uk but that's just me and i love the fact that this Band of, they didn't even look like punks. They were just dirty, unkempt, dressed a bit like Nick Drake, unwashed hair. And I got to know Chris a little bit I, I, and I, I thought he was just one of the great front men. I mean, Chris carried on for a number of, of years, different incarnations of the Saints. Ed Cooper, who was their great guitar player, went in a different direction with the Laughing Clouds. But I just want to, we're running two pieces. One from May 77, which is Pete Silverton in Sounds interviewing Chris on the phone before the Saints come and play the first gigs in london and he just talks about brisbane and the australian music scene how difficult it was to be a band like the Saints, when most bands were just top 40 covers bands. He describes Brisbane, where they came from, as a big urbanised country town with the worst aspects of both those things. A couple of people have got the local music scene sewn up and um, didn't want the Saints playing in their bars. And then he talks about, there's a great song on the second album called Australia, O-R-S-T-R-A-L-I-A, which is a sort of withering Attack on his his home his country. But he describes Australia at that time as fifty times more conservative than England. But in some ways we're in a similar situation. After the fairly liberal period of the Labour government, we've got a big right-wing backlash with the same high unemployment as Britain. I'm not saying it's a police state yet, but it's going that way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, farewell to Chris Bailey, one of the great punk and Australian frontmen. don't think we've lost anyone else of note in the last week though what often happens with our podcast is we finish recording it and then somebody dies and it and it sounds as if we're just ignoring them so if that's what's happened <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's if what's happened I- yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> it did happen with meatloaf it, the other day we uh, were barely barely signed off on the episode and, and and when we lost meatloaf so Vashti if you were Stay with us because Mark is going to talk about some of the pieces he's added. And if there's, as I said, if there's anything that kind of prompts a memory or comment in you, please just just jump in.
0: Yeah, last week, I won't going into because we already talked about it a week, couple of weeks ago. Muddy Waters interviewed by Max Jones in 1958. This is now I know that the people in England like a soft guitar and the old blues. Back home, they want to hear the guitar ring out. Uh, we did talk about that, so I won't go into it. This next piece is really interesting. This is Frank Bach, who's just come on board, Rock's Back Pages, for the Ann Arbor Sun in February 71. And he, he signs himself on this, this, this at the end of this article, Frank Bach, Minister of Culture for the White Panther Party. Yeah. And it's is about Jimi Hendrix and Janice Joplin both recently dying. The, t- the, the title of piece is Victims of the Plague. And he says, We have seen too many of our best men and women lose their energy and finding their lives through the use of bad dope. Sisters and brothers on the streets and in the ballrooms, those of us still holding jobs, going to school, in the army, or living at home, rock bands and stuff. So. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tirade against basically heroin particularly. And this is interesting because... Detroit and Ann Arbor in the late 60s, early 70s were absolutely kind of riven with what he calls pig drugs. <laughs> the Stooges had, were falling to pieces under the weight of addiction. The mm. MC5 had addiction problems. It was a r- real, real issue. So, whilst it's about Jimi Hendrix and Janice Joplin, he's actually addressing the community about a kind of a broader problem. It's really good stuff. Simon Reynolds, going forward to 87, uh, Simon Reynolds on the Smiths. But that's the Smiths for you, a weird mix of the reactionary and the progressive. Luddite rockism and polymorphous androgyny, uh, which is a Sun <laughs> Reynolds <in> action really. He <laughs> <laughs> saying say. <laughs> it's good stuff. And lastly, Fat Boy Slim, being interviewed by Andy Kreisel, an um, Enemy ninety seven. He says I laid off the ketamine. It's really scary stuff unless you get the dosage right. Exactly right. Well, he's, he's true, but he obviously didn't try hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we, it's marvellous to have this. It's a, it's a sort of a profile interview with Charlie Mingus by Robert Shelton from the New York Times in '62. He was just in the process of about to publish Beneath the Underdog, his extraordinary autobiography. And Mingus says, there's no such thing as third stream. There can be up to 126 streams. There is no jazz, there is no classical, there is only music. <laughs> Jasper, you're a you're a Mingus fan. Well, I love
5: that the after in the article he's referred to as Charlie Mingus. It's great. You know, and usually we think of Charles. as Charles. Yes, Charles. But, you know, but I, I think Mingus is fantastic. And I think that he's obviously everyone knows Mingus R um, but then like I was earlier listening to an album that came out about almost the same time. It was reported almost the same time, Blues and Roots with the absolutely wonderful moaning on it. And it's he's just he was a, a true composer, yeah, as well as as a fantastic musician as well. I mean, just I I I love Mingus.
0: He also does this extraordinary thing of he he sort of emerged during the bebop period, and yet his career carried on through what would now be characterised as soul jazz, through into free improvisation and everything in between. Yeah. Which is and at the very end of his life, of course, Jody Mitchell did that album with him. Yeah, he didn't live to see. Finished and released, which sadly, I think he's extraordinary. I I really do. Yeah, absolutely
4: agree.
2: Well, Ashley, where do where do you stand if you stand anywhere on jazz of of that period or, or <laughs> figures like Charles Mingus? Is, is that is that something you listen to at all? No, nope. no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you should
4: start. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, I, I,
2: yeah. you never know you might, you might make a jazz record if you immerse yourself <laughs> in the works of Mingus who knows who
3: knows <laughs> yeah okay I, I'll, I'll do that this afternoon yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's your homework <laughs> that's your homework for this afternoon if yeah. you could just you thank know, you. just if so you could get back in touch later today and tell us how that went <laughs> okay.
0: this next thing's great this is Pete Johnson in the LA Times in February 69 he's reviewing Dusty Springfield's Dusty in Memphis I mean just to get a review of this album on the site is just fantastic because it didn't get covered a lot in English papers, that's for sure. And he really gets, he says, the sound which emerges from the LP is not a hard rhythm and blues sound, but has the loose precision of other Memphis records. And there is a constant feeling of movement, even in the string arrangements. And Miss Springfield, it turns out, has a lot of soul which manifests itself in the relaxed feeling of her singing. She doesn't try to scream, a technique which would have been meaningless with her silky voice, but expresses herself with unconscious ease of a born blues singer. He gets it. I love it. Don't know about it, the rest of you. I think Dusty Memphis is one of the great records.
2: Vash, you must have something to say about Dusty Springfield. Did you, did you ever meet her? Was she no. around? And no, this, no, no,
3: no. No, I never met anybody really. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> We're the first people you've ever met. Yeah. Aren't
3: <laughs> no, I, I always felt as if that was that was what I was supposed to be with somebody with the with that hair with those dresses yes. you know, and, yes. and that was so completely a long way from yeah. me. But I did love her voice, and her yes. phrasing. I think I just I wanted to say that about Nick as well about his phrasing. Yeah. I think yeah, yeah I, I got away from that. But it, it, <laughs> that is what what really I love.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting you should say that, because she herself was really uncomfortable with the beehive and all and, yes. the, and all of that sort of stuff. Yes. Yet, you know, you went up to Scotland, she sort of hung in there, and in some, not destroyed of it really, it was very difficult for her. It was a tough, yeah. tough life sure, being Dusty Springfield. It
3: really, really, I'm sure it would have been.
0: Yeah, yeah. If not have
2: done it. I could not on that
0: road (laughs) the beehive no (laughs) that's my lot I don't know about you guys have you got anything to tell us about
2: I'll jump in with just a couple of things before asking Jasper but I wanted because we have two new writers have come on board in the last week 10 days the first is Scott McLennan an Australian writer I don't know if he ever wrote about the Saints but we've started the ball rolling with him the piece that he wrote about the Swedish pop goddess dance goddess Robin who I adore from 2008 it's a nice piece we don't have enough pieces about Robin and she tells a funny story about collaborating with Snoop Dogg and she says <laughs> it's just rather rather sweet she says he was smoking like you know well, we know what he would have been smoking in the studio all the time but she goes but I have been around smoke before, she says. <laughs> <laughs> Terribly sweet. Stop short of saying she's actually smoked. Yeah, she's been, yeah, around, she's been around smoke. I have been
0: around know smoke. smoke
2: in general.
0: we got a piece in the library. One of our writers interviewed Snoop Dobbin and made a mistake of smoking what Snoop was oh smoking. Yeah. And yes. promptly keeled over. And Snoop's mother saying, you know... He can get away with it, but I'm not sure anyone else yeah. can. Oh my
5: God. My yeah. Calvin
2: can cope. Yes. Yeah. Can yes. yes, exactly. The second writer is John L. Walters. And I mention him, not only because it's great to have him on board, but we've got ball rolling with him via an interview with Ry Kuda about the Chavez Ravine album, 2005. And I mentioned that, Also, because next week's sort of feature will be Rai and Taj Mahal, who are releasing their first, I think it's the first time they've recorded together since The Rising Suns, and it's an album dedicated to Sunny Terry and Brownie McGee. So watch out for that. There's going to be a Rai Kuda audio interview from 1976 which I'm sure will be wonderful Jasper what about yourself
5: thanks Barney first of all I just wanted to mention I was sort of hoping Mark that you might talk about the piece you had an interview added with Duke Ellington Max Jones Melody Maker 64 just because I adore he's you know another fantastic composer a true composer of, yeah, of that no, period I-
0: uh, I didn't because I thought we'd already talked too, about too much jazz. Like he's, he's he's, he says, <laughs> I, guess fate has been, I guess fate has been kind to me, as always. It doesn't want me to become too famous too That's exactly young. what I was about to read out. I
4: just love <laughs> it's that. Just just...
5: It's fabulous. I wanted to mention just to keep going on the jazz. Actually, Edwin Pouncy, and we've recently acquired a few Jazzwise magazines, and and we've also added John Newey. I mean, he he was on board for a while, but we've we've added a bunch more of his pieces recently. He's the editor of Jazzwise, but this piece is Edwin Pouncy giving the story of ESP Disc originally Esperanto Disco label which it's just a, it's a very interesting story you know founded by by a New York music business lawyer Bernard Stolman who had a vision that he wanted to share with the world after convincing himself that the international language in the future would be Esperanto he decided to prove his point by releasing an instructional album of children's songs called Nicanto and Esperanto yeah. but then you know went from there to recording like loads of free jazz just all sorts of really out there stuff which which is a, a very, very interesting out, label stuff so yeah. I mention that moving swiftly on to 2018 david burke on the godfather of pop michael mcdonald since a few of us have a kind of yacht rock interest but also <laughs> i it.
2: actually picked this <laughs> oh what <laughs> oh good rock <laughs> And we can explain <laughs> yes. to Ashley. Jasper. Jasper, Jasper, you have a go at defining wow. the yacht
5: rock. Fundamentally, yes. the yacht it tells you all you need to know. It's kind of like 70s no, it studio perfection. Gets, it's, 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 <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: It's, it's, I'm sorry. But, it's Look at that competing
2: with yeah, definitions. Here. Yeah,
0: and I'm, I'm waving my finger here as so well. It's essentially white guys impersonating high end soul music, yeah. but with a very sleek production.
5: Yeah, 70s that's studio perfect. perfection. That's what I said. He was. In Managed,
2: you didn't give
5: me a chance. Really. Anyway, he's, got he's,
2: it, he's got it down, man. <laughs> <laughs> the question is: Is there going to be a sort of subgenre called super yacht rock, <laughs> made exclusively for oligarchs? Oh, um, but...
5: <laughs> I actually picked anyway. this because there's a there's an interesting quote, and I thought it was interesting based on what we talked about earlier with with the idea of collaboration. David Burke asks Michael McDonald, "You've collaborated with a diverse range of artists, from James Ingram and Aretha Franklin to Thundercat and Solange." What makes a good collaborator? And Michael McDonald says, someone who's willing to step away. The one thing I have some trepidation about with co-writing is I always hate it when, if something's not happening, only one of us thinks that. I don't want to spend a lot of hours on a song I'm not really feeling an affinity with, don't put all your energy trying to breathe life into a corpse.
0: <laughs> suddenly, suddenly oh, we're gosh. back in
2: we're back in room the room. Yes, I thought I thought, Mark that and was, yes. I thought it was just a neat little thing. Oh, That's so extraordinary. Oh.
5: And then lastly, I just thought it was funny. Phil Collins at Suncorp Stadium, Brisbane. Andrew Stafford writes for The Guardian. And oh, it's previously mentioned. Yeah, Andrew mentioned Andrew Stafford? And he kind of finds finds himself, despite himself really having a good time at Phil Collins' you know huge 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 show Take Me Home is the single encore and it's the only choice really Phil looks knackered he gets to his feet once more and holds off stage again back slapped by his bandmates with a broad grin on his face everyone else is wearing one too everyone that is except for the poor kid maybe five years old who is crying and complaining to his mother too much too loud
4: <laughs> <laughs> so that's my lot Brilliant.
2: Uh, Well, that's wonderful. Thank you, Jasper and well we've come to the end of this episode and it remains for all of us to thank you Vashti so much yes. for joining yeah. us today it's oh, been, been such a pleasure fun. thank
4: you such thank a you pleasure so much.
2: it really has it's, it's been, been marvellous it's been yeah been really and, interesting you know, just <laughs> oh good well, that's not what every guest says Oh but... well, yeah yeah you have to do <laughs> uh, yeah including our colleague tony King, wow. who thinks we we generally have far too much fun on this podcast and far too much laughter oh. So, Jasper will be editing out all the laughter from this episode. But just uh, to say again, for the benefit of our listeners, your book, Wayward, Just Another Life book. to Live, is, it's not a very long book. It's a really beautifully written book. It's an extraordinary story. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, and that goes to all your music as well. So, you know, yeah. more power to you. Thank
4: you. Thank you so much. <laughs> we will go out
2: just with one last clip of Joe Boyd talking to Jerry Lim in 1994. Uh, and this is basically Jerry asking him why he didn't produce Pink Moon and Joe explaining why not. So that's it. And on that note, Bye. goodbye. Bye.
6: The way that he went about producing Pink Moon, because I had offered... To either to try and work with him either in California or to come back to England yeah. know, on a break or something to do his next record. Right. But he said, no, I want to do one very simple, just, just guitar. So I said, well, if, you want, if that's what you want, you can do it with John Wood. You don't need me. Uh,
3: that's why you. So that's why you didn't produce it. I
6: always wondered about that. Well, I was living in Los Angeles. It would have been awkward. Right. I was working for Warner Brothers, right. the film company. I was very busy. Right. But... I I felt that I would have made the effort to try and do something if he wanted to do another another record that had the same qualities as the first two. Right. But he very much didn't. And, you know, in retrospect, that leads me to wonder whether he didn't like the results of Brighter Later or Mm -hmm. whether he simply felt he did like it, but it was time to do something different.
4: Please beware of them that stare and only smile to see why time
5: that was Joe Boyd in conversation with Jerry Lim in 1994, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest, Vashti Bunyan. Wayward is published by White Rabbit and available now. You can visit Vashti's website at anotherday.co.uk. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Murison and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon podcast network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com
4: movement in your brain Sends you out into
1: I never thought I'd care about gardening until I bought a house in the suburbs. But now I find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer and I wonder, am I the fertilizer guy now? (laughs) No, no way. Everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen, right? Yeah, I'm still totally cool. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.